Welcome, dear listener, and thank you for joining me for this special Halloween edition of Dead Hand Radio. I'm your host, Andrew Hall. What we're about to embark on throughout these coming days leading up to Halloween is a series of interviews with people from all walks of life who've experienced some of the most harrowing, spine-chilling tales you've ever heard. We're talking ghost stories, haunted buildings, cursed lands, myths, legends, and lore, the likes of which many have never heard before. Some of my guests are new, most are returning visitors of the show, and have agreed to share with us, in some cases for the first time ever, their personal experiences of unexplained and hair-raising stories from beyond the veil. Consider this your final warning. Those who choose to proceed may have their sanity challenged, question reality, or lose their mind with fear from these tales of the unknown and unexplained. And now, the Dead Hand Radio Halloween Special. Hey everybody, this is Hanson Oak and you are listening to Dead Hand Radio. Welcome to Dead Hand Radio, and thanks for joining me for this special Halloween edition of the podcast, man. Hey, I appreciate being asked to be on the Halloween edition of the podcast. I'm just glad we could finally connect. Yeah, me too, man. It's been a while since uh, we first talked about doing something. Uh, you got pulled away because your the work that you do is pretty important, and uh, I guess this this whole crisis that we're in is extending longer than anybody had anticipated huh i don't know if it's longer than anybody anticipated but i think it's definitely longer than anybody hoped for true i mean you're a man of uh of history so if you look back at uh the 1918 pandemic and other things that have run their course none of this is ever uh, a short-lived adventure especially when it's uh, more or less an unknown virus popped up agreed uh, and you know it's funny a lot of people think because we're so advanced uh in our technology that we should be able to figure this out a lot sooner than we have but i i don't i don't know i mean science has to take its course right well it's it's funny because it's kind of like cell phones nobody really understands how a cell phone works on a technical level and they get so angry when a call drops or it's going slow or something like that. It's the same thing with the the pandemic and the science portion of it. Nobody really understands what goes into um, breaking down the virus sequence and figuring out how to make a, a vaccine for it and then all the testing that goes into it. And they are frustrated that it hasn't happened already. Yeah. Yeah, why don't we have a vaccine yet? And then you got a, a bunch of people out there 
that are saying a vaccine at this early stage without all the testing is a little premature and could be dangerous to mm -hmm. uh, release to the public. So kind of between a rock and a hard place, I guess. Yeah, there, there's, there's, uh, there's fear on both ends of it. Some people, they can research this thing and, and get a vaccine out in four, five, six, ten years, and they still wouldn't trust it. Yeah. And then there are people who, if you told them they can go back to getting drunk at a bar and whatever tomorrow, if they just shove it in their arm, they'll, they won't even ask a question. Right. And then they'll grow a third year or something and be like, what, where did this come from? Yeah, whatever, man. At least I can get back to the bar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where do you land on it all, man? I don't want to get political, but I, I know that you're in the field. So you've got a little yeah. more insight than most people. But I mean... I'm not a political person. I don't, I think like most people I fall in the middle. I, um, I think it's dumb if you subscribe completely to one party or the other and let them rule every opinion that you have and you can't sway from it. You know, as, as hard as a, a Republican as somebody might claim to be or a Democrat and they might fight the point, I can't imagine that anybody agrees with everything all the time. So there are some things where I can view, um, or have empathy with one side or the other on a topic. And there's sometimes I, I fall on uh, a democratic end of it or a conservative end of it, but it's never one thing. I think that's where most people actually land and except for the extremists. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what you see about in the news because that's what people are paying attention to. Right. Um, but on the vaccine, um, I was more curious uh, as to where you fall on if we come out with a vaccine like before the end of the year, is that something that you would uh, be willing to, to take yourself or to distribute to your children? Or would you be a little bit more cautious and wait until maybe a year has gone by and then, and then uh, go in for that? Well, I think you have to look at the, the science of it. You know, I, I think, you know, I'm not a religious person. So I think at some point in my life, I decided that if I don't believe in miracles and I don't believe in uh, some divine intervention, then I'm going to have to sort of put my faith into science because there's method to it that you can study and you can look at. Um, generally, it's peer reviewed. I mean, if you let, let's get away from the uh, conspiracy theory that the whole point of the vaccine is microchip to microchip the public and to control um, population and this and that. Let's get away from all that nonsense and just look at strictly um, the science portion of it. And to me, they're going through the steps that they would normally go through. One of the reasons that it's faster isn't because they're rushing, it's because the funding for it is readily available. That's, that's a big thing to understand is that a lot of times studies take years because they need the money behind it. Um, you know, if you look at uh, any of your pharmaceutical companies, where do they put the money? They put the money into where it's going to have the most impact. So if you have some disease that's only killing, you know, only, but it's only killing a few hundred people versus some disease that's killing tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people a year, whether it's in developing worlds or developed, um, 
the more bang for the buck is going to be where you can save more lives. That's a fair point. And it's something that I think gets overlooked. A lot of people or several people who think about these things on a deep level have equated this uh, response, the scientific community's response to this pandemic to at the end of World War II in the Manhattan Project. Right. And what they were able to accomplish in a, a relatively short period of time. Right. And, and you know, technology has a lot to play with that, too. I mean, besides the fact that it's all hands on deck, your studies, everything's fully funded. They have no problems. And God bless them. They have no problems finding volunteers. I mean, people are willing to take that shot in the name of science, in the name of um, humanity for their families, for whatever their reasons, they're, you know, completely putting their own um, personal safety aside for the, the betterment and the, the, of the vaccine um, and for humanity in general. So um, they're not skipping steps. If you look at the science of it, they're going through this exactly as they would. The size of the, um, the sample group for their, uh, the third stage of the vaccine tests it didn't. It wasn't like okay. Well, generally speaking, we have a hundred thousand volunteers that we have to study. But because we're in a hurry, we're only going to do fifteen people, and uh, hope for the best. But they're they're going through the 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 standards and the practices um, that they normally would. And and keep in mind too, this isn't some shady. You know, I know a lot of people are having trouble trusting the government now and in general you know there, there are people who would never trust the government they may trust science but they don't trust the government um, there are people who don't trust big pharma in general um, or now that big pharma and the government are are dancing together they certainly don't trust it but if you if you look at these companies the people that are developing this there are brilliant people and this is what they do this is this is why they get up in the morning uh, this is their passion. This is why they went to school. They're they're brilliant people behind this that want to save. You know, they're saving their own lives and and their family as much as anybody else. So I don't buy into the politics of it. I get the fear of it, but again, I, I think it's it's disturbing to me. And I, I talk to people I work with about this, and I talk to my wife about this. If you look at the nineteen eighteen pandemic with the flu. Um, and you look at the news articles and everything from the beginning of that crisis, go month by month and get to where we are now, it plays out exactly the same. Exactly really? the oh, same. Wow, that's interesting. You're talking about people who think, I mean, you know, everybody likes to think they're original. But if you look back at the articles back then, you'll see the same arguments against masks. You'll see people are saying you need to wear masks. You'll see people in hospitals, doctors, the government, local government saying you have to wear a mask and then people equating that to um, government tyranny and censorship, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you look at um, when they were talking about um, vaccination and all sorts of stuff and they were, they were making it so, uh, there, were, there was a thought where it would be a mandated thing, which you know in America, we're more individualized as a society than we are finding um, a commonality with each other. And that doesn't matter if you live in the same neighborhood. 
we we have trouble um, seeing ourselves as a society. And it's, you know, maybe it's because geographically we're so vast, or maybe it's because of the diversity that some people, if they don't see themselves as a mirror image in the person standing next to them, they don't see their own humanity shared with that person. But whatever the reason, um, when they talk about vaccinations, they do the same arguments that they're making now is that they're going to be euthanizing, is that it's population control, it's poison going into it, vaccines don't work. It's the same arguments. So we may have um, advanced almost 100 years to the, to the day <laughs> as, as the last time that um, humanity and America went through this crisis, but mentally, and, and that's what's so staggering, mentally, we're making the same mistakes. And it's and not only are we making the same mistakes, but the mistakes that we made are have been written down and they're on official record and they're easy to, you can Google it and see the actual newspapers and the actual flyers that they used to pass out that was against vaccination and against masks and all sorts of stuff against lockdowns. That's why history is so important, because if you if you look at the mistakes of the past and you know those mistakes and the steps that were made to lead to those mistakes, you can avoid those those same mistakes. But, but why do why do people fail to uh, to to learn their history and understand how important it is to know history? Well, you're you're. Um... I don't know if I would call you a history buff, but you're definitely a student of history. I have things that I've seen and your podcast and such, you, you know, you're um, big on, I guess, learning and following the lessons that we should have learned and um, things that happened in the past. But why do you think that as a society, we, we refuse to move in a direction where as, as a whole, we can learn from it and accept it? That is a good question that I hadn't put enough thought into to to really give you a <laughs> definitive answer, but it's something that I'll certainly think about. Um, and as far as me being a history, I have an an intense interest in the topic mm -hmm. of history. I wouldn't call myself an expert by any means, and uh, I'm there's so much to learn about history, but knowing history and seeing the mistakes that were made uh, from past generations and being able to uh, apply that knowledge to today's crisis or, you know, I mean, we're not only dealing with one crisis, man, we've, this pandemic has created multiple or, or I should say a number of crises on multiple fronts. And you know, so a lot of people are saying this, that what we're dealing with is unprecedented, you know, coming out of the media who you would hope were smart enough to know better. Mm -hmm. They're saying the, these, you know, the, the things that we're dealing with is unprecedented. And, you know, why, why don't they get some smart people like yourself out there that can talk intelligently about this and articulate the, the path to success? No, you don't. You don't want me in front of a TV or camera. Or uh, recovery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know what I think it is is, um, you know, 
aside from the the 24-hour news cycle and and the need to hype headlines and stuff like that i think this is um this is scary enough um from a perspective where you don't have to hype uh, and i think a lot of people um have short memories so to say something is unprecedented you know we live in uh a time where everything is second to second. There is no long term. As from an evolutionary standpoint, it doesn't make sense for anything to have um, the mindset to either look into the future too far or think about the past too much. It's it's the present where you survive. So I think that might have uh, something to um, play into it. But um, you know, none of this is is unprecedented. Every everything it's all happening at once. It's a tidal wave. But in its pieces, um, nothing is unprecedented. We've seen it before. For the most part, it's been uh, well documented. Yes, there are certain things that are new, um, but we're we're still falling into the same trappings. You know, it's sensationalism. You know, this is unprecedented. We've never seen it before. This is happening. That's happening. It gets people worked up, and it sells advertising airtime, and 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 that's how it is. It, it draws people in. Yeah, it's hysteria. It's hysteria. And if you have somebody that's just, you know, you point a camera at him and you have a, a scientist, a brilliant scientist, and he goes through all the facts, people's eyes are going to glaze over. Mm-hmm. They're going to stop listening. But when you have really good looking people on the news telling you that we're all going to die, just hang on there for our two minute commercial break and we'll tell you how you're going to die. That's going to get viewers. There was a uh, a good illustration of what you just said. There there was a um, a little clip on one of the news channels, and the uh, commentator or whatever you call those people. And this is as I'm surfing through channels. So this guy says, "Alert! Terrorist alert! Uh, Americans are at risk of being kidnapped." And we'll tell you more about it after the commercial break. <laughs> Right. I swear, man, I heard that today. And I was like, are you kidding me? You're going to leave me hanging like this? I mean, you know, my wife is out. I live in Las Vegas and my wife is mm-hmm. out there, you know, doing her thing. And my daughter's off in another part of the city and Americans are at risk of being kidnapped. And you're not even going to tell me more information about it until I watch a commercial. Yeah, wait on. And then when it comes back, it's, it's you know, some pocket of the world where you can get Istanbul, that. Turkey. Was that yeah. Right? Yeah. It was in you Turkey. <laughs> right. So, you know, it's so you put your car keys down and you're five minutes late to get to work now because right. of the information you already know. Yeah. It's not, yeah. Well, I, I always find it interesting. Um, you know, you're, you're an artist yourself with your um, photography. Um, I always find it interesting how um, your uh, following history and 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 learning about it um, plays into your art, you know. And I, I know from what I've seen, um, you you like the desolation of, um, I guess, the empty canvas of where people left and they left their buildings and and uh, cars and stuff like that. And nature starting to take it back. And that seems like there's an interest in that for you. So I, I'm curious how your interest in history and stuff like that and your preference in uh, landscape photography sort of plays into each other. Uh, well, first of all, thank you. I appreciate you, um, what you said, and you said it 
quite eloquently, man. I, I really appreciate that. Uh, yeah, I do. Um, see, I've had an interest in, and it goes back to when I was a, a young boy, probably eight or nine years old, and I learned about the threat of nuclear war. Mm. Uh, growing up with that um, in the 70s, and, um, you know, the, the propaganda that was going around back then, we didn't know if we were going to live through the century, or I mean, through the, the decade, let alone the next century. So it was, mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of, a lot of interest in me, in my mind, about what would happen after the nuclear war. There was also a bunch of movies in pop culture that were about post-apocalyptic um, world and, and how it would look. Mm -hmm. um, so that was something that really captured my imagination and, uh, uh, you know, that along with the, the historical, uh, implications of where we had been and things that had happened in the past and how could we prevent that from happening? Because I, I, I do see the beauty in desolation and abandonment but i do not want to live in a world where that is everywhere mm -hmm. that's the last thing that i would want to do and so i am totally against nuclear proliferation um and that's not a political statement that's mm -hmm. a humanistic statement i think the more nukes that we have the more dangerous our world is and if we can if we can get rid of all nukes, the world would be a safer place. So you don't, you're not a, uh, you don't buy into the argument of if everybody had them, nobody would use them. Deterrence through mm -hmm. mutually assured destruction. Correct. I, I don't know about you, but anybody who buys into that um, really needs to study history because if you have a weapon, if humans have a weapon, they're going to use it. And by thinking that your enemy is not going to use it because you have a bigger one, it's folly, you know, let alone the possibility of the, um, the number of accidents that have happened and are, we're still at risk for, for happening again. We've been lucky to dodge that bullet of nuclear war. Where do you think, um, the threat of nuclear. I'm sorry to take over your show here. Hey, man, it's cool. <laughs> where do you where do you see the threat of nuclear war um, coming from? Like, which which country? And you know, it could be our own. But which country do you feel is the threat at the moment? Or or if just by having it, there's the inherent threat. Um, well, I think there's there's two different questions in that question, and and. The, the, the question of what is the greatest risk for nuclear war is an accident happening. Um, a, a, a rocket launch into space gets misidentified as a nuclear warhead launch. And one of our, one of our enemies retaliates against us. That almost happened. Um, and I, uh, don't ask me to, to quote the date 
and all that stuff because I I'm, I don't have it in front of me, but it, you can look it up. It's, uh, so that's the greatest risk for nuclear war is that there's an accident or a misidentification of something that's perceived as aggressive and as a as a countermeasure, the enemy retaliates. Uh, our greatest, I think our greatest hotspot for a conflict is somewhere in South China Sea. And I think it might be Taiwan mm-hmm. um, because the Chinese are making really aggressive moves to reclaiming Taiwan as sovereign or, you know, taking away their sovereignty, like what they're trying to do in Hong Kong. Well, they're, they're winning that battle over there. I didn't, I thought when all the, um, the protests and resistance and everything was happening, um, was it a, a couple of years ago now, right? When, you know, you had the umbrella protests and, uh, well, it was right, that... up, right up to 2019, right before the pandemic hit, they yeah. were, they were and, still out in the streets protesting. Yeah. And I really, I mean, you know, I'm always pulling for humanity. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I really am. I, I'm always pulling for humanity. And I saw them out there and and, uh, and it seemed like for a second they were going to get what they wanted, which was uh, an absolute guarantee of sovereignty moving forward um, in their history. And it, I think I thought that because the people who were fighting against it got quiet and stopped fighting. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they gave them, they gave up ground. Yeah. And things eased. And maybe, you know, that's the most ominous sign. But when you're when you're constantly having pressure put against you and then the pressure lets up, I think your first instinct is that you've succeeded in something. They won the when, battle, but the war was yeah. not ended. When the reality was um, China and the powers that be realized that the optics of pushing back against these people would have repercussions. So they changed how they did it and they did it in a way, I mean, you know, from, from I, I, I won't say that I followed this very deeply, but from, from what I've seen, they, they did it in a way where it was almost like, okay, we're not going to fight you in the streets. We're going to fight you in the courts. Yeah. And slowly but surely, they started passing all these little shadowy bills and laws that one by one, especially in the beginning, didn't seem um, all that threatening. And then they started going, and again, this is one of those learn from history. Then they started going after assembly, and then they started going after speech, and then they started going after the press, and then they started going after um, the elections. And so it all slowly crept up to now they find themselves standing in a noose waiting for the bottom to drop out. Yeah. And everybody turned their heads away because it's not people getting tear gassed and beat up in the streets. It's little announcements that come out that don't really, you know, th- you're not coming back from commercial break to hear about the new law that passed locally. You know what I mean? But when they were all out there with umbrellas and tear gas was going on and they were spraying protesters with paint so they can come and find them later, you know, people paid attention to that. 
but now they're actually in a much more dangerous situation because they have laws and precedent in the court, you know, legitimate or not, that are are threatening them and people who speak up and dissidents, you know. So to me, that that over there, that's a, that's a, and then you're talking about the the South China Sea chip situation. I remember um, a few years ago, China made the claim that they're not building islands down there. They're not building up islands. And then you see satellite imagery from, let's just say, three weeks ago, and it's barely an island poking its head out of the water. And then three weeks later, there's air bases. They've expanded the island to be a few miles instead of a few feet. And you're like, wait a second, like <laughs> that wasn't there. We have satellite imagery now. You can't just say you're not doing something when we have proof. Yeah. So, so I agree. I think that's a very um, scary situation in, in that part of the world. And again, I don't think people really pay much attention to that because there's no direct conflict. It's just a lot of words and words aren't sexy and they don't grab your ratings. Yeah, what, what China's doing is, is the greatest threat to our democracy, to our freedom, to the free world in itself. And they're doing it in a way that, like you said, man, it's so, it, it's so like these backdoor agreements. You know, somebody's getting rich in Hong Kong. Some of the people in Hong Kong that are in political positions to get these laws passed, they're getting rich. Absolutely. Because they're selling out their people by passing these laws. Um, you know, and God, I, I, I hesitate to say this, but anybody who thinks that that cannot happen in the U.S. is naive at the, mm -hmm. very, at the very least naive, mm -hmm. willfully ignorant at the, you know, if, um, if I want to get mean about it, but <laughs> people, people really need to pay attention to what's going on in that part of the world because it's happening in South Africa. It's happening in South America, not South Africa. It's happening in, in parts of Africa, but it's happening, you know, in South, South America as well. China is making moves in all those areas. And it, if we don't stand up to them and stop them at these critical points somehow, before you know it, they're going to be in this country doing the same thing. I always wonder, though, what the the stomach is um, for war, and, and obviously that's not something you want it to come to. But I wonder what the stomach is for war within um, within America at this point. I mean, we're war weary from being involved in Afghanistan and so on in that region for so long, even though the attention to it died out way before the actual fighting died out. Um, but I wonder, I wonder, you know, I wasn't alive during it and I'm sure things were different because everything's romanticized when you look backwards, especially because, you know, winter writes the history books and, and all that. But, um, you know, World War II, when before America got involved and they were seeing and hearing um, about the things that were going on over there, even early on, you know, before 
before the atrocities really got going, before we were attacked, but you know the war was still raging for years before where we got involved, um, and there was an isolationism at the time, and you know America first, and I don't totally agree with, I disagree with um, America first as far as um, wanting your country to do well and taking care of your own to a certain degree before you start getting involved in, in other places. However, I don't believe in isolationism. But what is, the, what is the thought that America, if you, if you presented your case of what China is doing or allegedly doing, um, what do you think if America took a vote to get involved, do you think that they would? Or do you think that everybody is so distracted by the 10 million distractions about all the things that aren't really important that they've turned away from the larger scope of what's happening in the world and just pay attention to what's on their phones. The 1940s, the, the world was a completely different landscape. The United States was heavily patriotic and um, a, a very unified country before, uh, before we were attacked. So, and at the moment that we were attacked in Pearl Harbor, that just solidified that unification, that unity and mobilized the entire country. And I think that it would take an outright attack to mobilize and to unify the country. We saw the same thing at, uh, on 9-11. 2001 um, that attack completely solidified the country as as one and we you know no no stone left no stone unturned to find the people who did what they did uh, the same thing would happen if there was an outright attack against the u.s by china but i don't think that's going to happen i don't think we're going to see that happening what 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 happens if we shoot one of their planes down, they shoot one of our planes down, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's not an attack on the homeland, so to speak. This happened over there. And I think over there, as small as the world has become with the internet and television and travel and stuff like that, over there, I think is further than it's ever been because we're so caught up in our, in our own worlds that it's easy to look away from things that are happening that are uncomfortable to look at and to deal with. So do you think it would take an actual assault, you know, on American soil? And I'm, when I say American soil, I don't mean, you know, an American territory. I mean, an American, you know, Hawaii again, or, or uh, mainland for, for people to actually come together. I think it would take more than uh, a, perceived accident, you know, an accidental shoot down of one of our planes. I think if there was a, a, a sinking of a battleship, not, we don't have battleships anymore, sorry, uh, uh, an aircraft carrier. If it was the sinking of an aircraft carrier in the South China Sea, and it was implicit that China did it, but all sides of the political spectrum in the U.S. would solidify and come to an agreement to declare war on China because of that. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think anything short of that uh, is probably going to be brushed over 
and painted as an accident or a posturing. And so it would have to be something extreme that would um, completely unify Congress to, to come to an agreement and declare war on a country. Well, so it's, you know, I, I sometimes question if where we're at now, what it would take to unify short of some disaster like that or aliens finally making their way over here. Oh, let it be aliens, please. <laughs> you know, that would be so much more interesting than being invaded by a, a foreign country. <laughs> you know, if we're going to go, let it at least be interesting. <laughs> And with the way 2020s go, and it wouldn't even be shocking. People would just be, oh, yeah, that's where this happens. Right. <laughs> Somebody posted on, on Twitter, if 2020 was a, uh, a book, what, what genre would it fall under? And my response was, it doesn't matter because they wouldn't print it. If you wrote what happened so far, and down to the details of murder hornets and all sorts of stuff that popped up, nobody would ever publish it. Because no, it's too unrealistic. Nothing has to do with the other thing. It's just all over the place. You have too many storylines. You know, you have to simplify this. And it just keeps, more stuff just keeps happening. That's so. true. And, and outside of the world that you work in, mm -hmm. uh, the space that you live in uh, within your creative pursuits is writing. And it seems your writing uh, tends to go <clears throat> tends to go towards the dark side. Uh, is that by design or are you, um, are, are you just responding to demand? Um, no, I mean, you know, I've, I've lived a few lives <laughs> over the course of my single life. And uh, one of them I worked in, in film and television for, for years um, as a writer. Um, and I worked for, uh, or with and at Fangoria for a while and, um, a few other places did a lot of, uh, freelance work for different horror companies, um, had a web horror, um, series for a while and, and ghost wrote a lot of stuff and whatnot. And it just, for whatever reason, um, my writing always gravitated to be dark, but I never considered it to be dark. To me, it's, I don't see it as dark. I see humanity and horror. You know, I think um, romance and horror are, are the same thing, just played out in different ways. You're, you're playing on emotions and you're playing on fears and you're playing on hope. Um, so all the themes are the same. Um, it just so happens that in horror, sometimes it gets a little gory and sometimes it gets a little bloody and sometimes you don't have to do either to get a reaction and to scare people or to um, give people a sinking feeling in their stomach. Sometimes it's just the right few words in the right order. And for the individual reader, they're going to get a certain reaction from that that maybe I didn't even anticipate when I wrote it. So I don't, I don't think I planned to write harder. I think a lot of the uh, professional work that I did um, just because of opportunities at the time, uh, were in horror. Um, but over, over time, I realized, one, I enjoy writing it, and two, um, it seemed like I can create things that um, 
other people hadn't or couldn't. Not a lot of people um, really write horror. There's not a lot of you know horror authors when you compare to other genres like sci-fi and, and stuff like that. Well, you do it well, my friend, and that's uh, easily what uh, I can um, relate back to and contribute to the reason you and I connected. I'm not a big horror fan. I, I can say that right now. It might not. It might not seem like that's true, but. I, I enjoy some horror, uh, but in moderation. Right. Well, just like romance, there's there's variations and subgenres of horror. You have, you know, your shock horror. You have your exploitation horror. You have um, haunted houses. You have uh, torture horror. You have, you know, and and each one has its place i'd like to think that the stuff that i write um tends to be more focused on the story and the people and the characters and the space that things exist in and that for me makes horror that much more terrifying when you're rooting for characters and you see yourself there um you know i'm not being I, you know on, on twitter the stuff I write on Twitter and then the stuff that I'm I'm writing on as for novels and stuff like that are two different things because Twitter, you have this very confined um, space, which I always find it challenging to try to create um, something that is going to tell a story, um, elicit a reaction and um, um, entertain people who don't just like horror because it has to be more than just horror if you want to branch out. Um, so like a lot of the people I interact with are people that follow me and stuff like that. A lot of them, they don't fo follow another horror writer. And, and I take that as a compliment because it means that I'm doing more than just shock horror or gore, which again, there's nothing wrong with that. That's just not the, the area that I prefer to work in because I don't think, I think you, have, you, you limit yourself into what you can do when you when you um, work in an arena like that because that's when people come for a horror movie um you can tell a thousand different ghost stories and people will come and see it but you're telling the same torture story and you're selling the same um you know uh, gore story and your audience that watches those gore movies that's what they're there to see you start putting storylines and trying to get um you know uh change it up and you're going to lose that audience. Whereas people like yourself, you may not watch a lot of horror, but when you watch a horror movie, it's a good movie that so happens to be horror. Exactly. And that's how I uh, would categorize your writing. Uh, your writing is, is very psychological or uh, another word that I can apply to it is cerebral because it makes you think, but it's, uh, and, you know, I'm talking about your writing on Twitter because I have I, I didn't even know your your backstory be, um, because there's nowhere on the Internet that I could find a biography about you. That was a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> Hanson Oak, as, as I stand, is a. Um, is a collective of time and experiences and. Um, where I've come in the craft. So 
what you're going to find out about me now is in the lifetime and the lifeline of who I am now. It's disconnected from, from uh, where I was, though all of those things still have a very profound effect of what I'm doing now. Obviously, they led me to it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've always thought that uh, Hanson Oak was a pen name, and you don't have to answer if it is, mm-hmm. but uh, it is one of the coolest pen names, if, if it is a pen name. And if it's a real name, hats off to your parents. Because <laughs> <laughs> that is a cool name, man. Uh, but um, yeah, it fits. You know, it's just the, it, the, the whole persona that you've created on Twitter is just an interesting uh, an interesting work of creativity in my opinion from the the name of the account the the profile photo you got up there you know it doesn't even show i I don't even know if it's your real face but it doesn't show your whole face i'll give you that it's my real face okay good it's a real it's a real part of my face okay (laughs) uh and then the words that you string together in your little tweets um you and each individual tweet is nearly a completed story from start to finish some of those could be drawn out into novels or movies but you tell a complete story within that that short enough there's a few authors on twitter who do that very well and uh it it's it just it blows my mind that that people like you are are even existing in this world with that much creativity <laughs> and you compact it into such a short little paragraph. I, I appreciate that very much. Thank you. The uh, um, Twitter, I, I avoided Twitter for a very long time. Uh, I avoid most social media. I don't really, I don't have a Facebook or, you know, stuff like that. I don't even know, you know, I'm, I'm fairly young. Um, I'm only 38 years old and uh, I, I don't know what the hell's going on with social media. I don't know what the kids are doing these days, Andrew. I have no idea. And I don't understand a lot of the social media, um, what the purpose of it is, except for wasting time. And I avoided Twitter for a very long, long time. And then somebody told me, just, you know, get with it. Like, get get into, just take, put one toe in, in the modern world and and see what's out there. So I, I signed up for Twitter, didn't understand it. You know, I, I just, it, it made no sense to me what I was supposed to do. <laughs> so uh, uh, for a very long time, I had, you know, the handle reserved, but I didn't use it. I didn't even sign on to it. Um, and then one day I uh, was messing around on it. I was, I was on a, a train on my way to a, a meeting and I was bored and the train was stuck on the tracks. And uh, so I started just flipping through my phone and uh, saw Twitter buried in the apps tab and I opened it up and was just started looking around. And at first it was just, you know, what you expect from Twitter. It's just anger and people yelling at each other and, hey, I have an opinion. Well, you should die. Okay, well, I, you know, why is anybody, why is anybody doing this? I just couldn't understand it. And then um, I, I forget exactly what hashtag I, I used, but it, it got me more into the world, into the, the little secret corner of writing Twitter, where for the most part, 
people are civil and encouraging and creative. Um, and then when I, when I discovered that, uh, Twitter started to make sense. And then what I could do on Twitter that I might enjoy or, or might introduce me into um, that community started to make sense. And uh, I, I got a clear picture of it. And then over, I've only been on for, I don't know, a year, a little over a year. Um, and, and so then I started toying around with it. And it's interesting that you, you bring up, I know you said you haven't read any of my longer stuff, but the um, Twitter, a lot of times I'll use as a warm up when I'm, I'm sitting down to write, um, just to sort of get the brain flowing. And then um, I'll start working on whatever project it is that I'm working on. But a lot of the tweets um, in Twitter, I'll flag things that I, I really like. It's kind of like a notebook or a little public journal. Um, and a lot of it has found its way into my longer stories. There's a, um, a piece called, uh, they came from the sea and they went to the stars, which was in an anthology um, uh, that came out last year. Um, it was the uh, Dark Tides anthology and it featured a lot of really great um, emerging writers. And it also featured uh, Stephen King and Neil Gaiman. And it was a charity piece, um, but really a great collection. Even if I, I wasn't involved in it, I'd, I'd totally recommend it. A great collection of stories by some great writers. Um, I think Gestalt Media put that out. And um, a, a lot of the characters that were in that story uh, actually originated on, on different little Twitter bits that I wrote and that I marked and that I figured like this person or this character is interesting. I'd like to explore them in, in a different setting. Um, and they found their way into that story. But even uh, two of the longer stories, the novels that I'm working on now started out as tweets. So. For me, I kind of found a way that Twitter and social media works, and I've connected with some great people like yourself um, that I wouldn't have otherwise ever found. Um, so I guess there is there is an upside to it. Um, however, outside of writing Twitter, it's it's still a dumpster fire, and I, I won't ever defend oh, <laughs> what no. happens. It's ninety nine percent noise, and if you can just tune out that noise and, like you said, find those little nooks and niches of people you can find the best people from all over the world the internet does have a, a its negativities but it also is the most powerful communication tool in existence in, in history mm -hmm. and i've met some of the coolest people and i've talked to some of the coolest people in all parts of the world without it i don't know it, it, the world is certainly a different place but I think it's a better place overall because of it. I agree. I think, and I think the only way that we're going to, you know, as cliche as it might sound, the only way to get through the darkness of what it is is to use um, the, the goodness of what it is. In order to fight the darkness, you have to be the light. You, mm -hmm. have, to, you have to do good at every, at every opportunity you can. And that doesn't mean trying to convince other people they're doing wrong. That just means you do what's good. Be the change you want to see in the world. There you right? go, man. That's, that's you go. the simplest that's statement, but so profound. I mean, the, the story that you told about a Norse, about the Norse mythology, and you told it beautifully, man. I did listen to it. Would you give it a little bit of an intro to that? 
so this this story, you know, it's a very old story. And at, at one point, I was getting very into um, the traditional storytelling, which is, you know, standing in front of or sitting around a fire uh, with your audience um, and reciting a story. And it is one of the most impossibly hard things to do. It's, it's one of those things that sounds so easy, but it's so hard to do well. And that's why, you know, through, through uh, time, there was the storyteller of the community, one or two people who would recite the history of, of the people or their myths or their religion, because really it is, it is incredibly difficult to not only remember it, but to be able to, to um, recite it back. And I've since, you know, I still enjoy it, but I've since kind of given up that career path <laughs> just because I'm good at a lot of things, but, but um, doing that consistently or as a, as a profession is, is not one of them. So I, I tell my kids stories. I make up stories for my, for my children that I tell them before bed that they enjoy. And that's kind of where I, I let it lay. But this story is a very, very old story, a very old myth about um, the uh, Norse god Thor, which everybody knows, um, who is uh, sort of palling around Midgard, which is the, uh, the realm that um, human beings uh, inhabit in the, uh, the uh, Norse religion, and um, decides that he's going to go uh, pay a visit to one of the, uh, the monsters or the creatures or the giants. Um, of, of the uh, religion and go out on a, uh, uh, a fishing trip with him. So that's, that's what the, the story is. It's one of my favorites, um, especially from that part of the world, because there's a lot of stories that uh, theme and, and the story itself repeat um, throughout the world and religion. There's a lot of things that are a lot of very similar, but I've found um, in, in the Norse religion um, nine times out of ten, you're not going to hear another story about Odin or anything like that, anything that comes close anywhere else, and that's kind of what, what drew me to that. Hello, my name is Hanson Oak, and I want to tell you a story. Thor is as recognizable today as he's probably ever been, having seen a rebirth in popularity through films and comic books, but... Thousands of years ago, he was even more recognizable, and not just because he stood a full two heads above the average person, but because when he would travel through Midgard, which is one of the nine worlds where humans exist, he would do so in a cart drawn by two huge goats, and he'd move through the clouds, causing such chaos as to draw thunder from them. And this would alert people that Thor was coming, and they'd scramble and they'd put on fine feasts for him, and they'd wear their best clothes and their brightest smiles, and they'd try to gain favor with the god. But this is not what Thor wanted. One day Odin was throwing a feast in Asgard and he noticed that Thor wasn't eating which is very uncharacteristic for Thor and he sat next to him and he put his hand on his shoulder and he said, son, your smile used to draw my smile. Your joy was my joy and I have seen neither for some time so I beg you please tell me what's wrong. What's bothering you? So Thor explained that he wanted to know humanity better. He wanted to know their nature. But every time he would show up, they'd change, because they wanted to draw his favor, and this made him sad. But then he had an idea, and he said, Father, with your magic, could you make it so that I appear as just a man to them? 
perhaps even a below average man, so I can live among them and know their joys and their sorrows. I can join in their celebrations and feel their hardships, and I can better know the realm that I'm supposed to protect. And Odin said, that is a good idea. I'll make it so. And so Thor began to travel around the settlements in Midgard and live with the people, and he did indeed know their sorrows and their hardships, but he also knew them and he knew their hearts, and that was what was most important to him. But there was one settlement where he spent more time than any other, and this one was right on the outskirts of the wilderness. This particular settlement had no lodges, no homes. They had no livestock, and they only had small fields in which to grow their vegetables. They slept in the rain, but they were happy, and they shared with Thor all that they could, and they were good hosts, and they became friends, and then those friends became family, and he was as close to them as he was with any of the other gods. One night, when they were sleeping in the rain, or not sleeping, Thor rolled over to one of them and said, Why do you not build lodges? And as his stomach growled, he said, Why do you not have livestock so we may not be hungry? Why not at least have larger fields to tend? And with heavy hearts, they explained to him that out of the wilderness from time to time, a giant named Hamir would come, and he'd eat their livestock, and he'd eat their gardens, or he would just stomp them flat as a way to amuse himself. And if any of them ever put up a fight, he would crush them or eat them. And so, it was just easier this way. This broke Thor's heart. And he said to them, I will go into the wilderness and I will find Hamir and I will make him stop doing this. And they laughed until they knew he was serious and they said, well, you can't do that because, well, look at you and he's a giant. Obviously that won't end well. And Thor said, no, you've shown me such great hospitality that I will go and I will find him and I will stop him. And so Thor went into the wilderness, and at that time, especially going alone, that was a place where you generally didn't return from. That was the realm of the giants. So Thor looked around for a few weeks until he finally found this farm. And he knew it was the farm of Hamir because the great fields were filled with tremendous livestock and incredibly sized oxen. So he walked up to the door and he knocked on it, but there was no answer. Then he knocked some more, but there was no answer. Then he realized his small fist, even as Thor, could not rattle the house enough to draw any attention from the inside. So he reached into his satchel where he kept uh, Molnir, which is his hammer, and very gently, as not to knock the whole house down, rapped on the door. The door was answered by Hymir, who looked about, but saw nothing. So Thor clapped his hands and waved his arms, and eventually Hymir looked down in front of his feet, and standing no taller than his shoe, stood Thor, but he looked just like a small, weak man. And so Hamir said, Human, do you know where you are? And Thor nodded and said, I do. And he said, do you know who I am? And Thor nodded and said, I do. And he said, I should chew you up and spit you back over your kind, as a warning never to come and disturb me at my house. And Thor said, of course you could do that and there's nothing I could do to stop you. But I've been on a very long journey. And obviously, if I was not desperate, I would not disturb you. I beg of you, just a bit of hospitality. Perhaps a speck of food and a warm place to lay for the night. And I will be on my way. Hamir considered this and he agreed. Seeing the courage of the man, he led him into the house and he said, I will give you a speck of food and I will give you a warm place to sleep. 
But know this, in the morning I might lose my patience waiting for breakfast, and you will become my meal. And Thor said, obviously there's nothing I could do to stop you, so be it. So Hamir, being a good host, and being very hungry, had his daughter cook up a tremendous feast that consisted of three roasted oxen, ten broiled salmon, and six acres of prepared vegetables, along with two huge barrels of mead. He sat down, he enjoyed the smells, and his stomach started to growl, and he picked up his tremendous fork and his gigantic knife, and he leaned forward to stab it into something so he may eat, and he noticed that there was no food on the table. All the plates were empty, nothing but crumbs. He looked over to Thor, who sat back in his seat, rubbing his stomach, looking almost satisfied. None of this made sense to Hamir. He knew that the food was on this table, and he knew that a man that size cannot possibly consume all of this food, especially so quickly. So he felt he must be sick. He wasn't seeing things right, he wasn't thinking right, and he called to his daughter, Bring me eggs, bring me chicken, bring me more vegetables, bring me whatever we have, for I'm still hungry, and Thor let out a tremendous burp that shook the house and said, I, as well, am still hungry. So Hamir's daughter bought the food and set it down for everybody. And Hamir was happy once more and excited to eat, and he leaned forward to eat, and once again, just crumbs on the plates. And he looked to Thor, and Thor ran his hand over his mouth, let out another burp, and said, Now I'm thirsty. Can I trouble you for just a bit of mead to wash down such a fine meal? And Hamir motioned to his daughter and said, A thimble of mead for our guests. And she bought over the thimble, and he drank it quickly and said, Ah, that is not quite enough to wash down whatever I have eaten. So he walked to the one barrel, and he lifted it into the air, and he brought it to his mouth, and he drank it empty. Then he walked to the next barrel, and he lifted that one, and he put it to his mouth, and he drank that empty, and there was no more mead to be drunk. Well, Hamir was beside himself. Not only had he never seen or knew that a man was capable of eating that much food, but now he had no more meat in the house, just two empty barrels. And he stood from the table and he said, Surely I'm not right. I'm not feeling well. I will take to the night and I will go to sleep. And in the morning, I will most likely be hungry, little man. And you will be my breakfast. And Thor, stuffed to the gills, leaned against the wall, sucking some meat out of his teeth and said, So be it. There's nothing I can do to stop you, if that's what you wish to do. Good night. The next morning, Hamir came into the room and found Thor sleeping in the corner, still looking quite satisfied, and he nudged him with his foot, but this was a giant's nudge, which sent Thor flying through the side of the house and into the fields, disturbing the livestock and being woken up by the bright sun, and he got to his feet, and he was very angry, because Thor does not like being woken up. And he reached into his satchel for his hammer, and he turned and he saw Hamir coming out of the front door laughing, and he returned the hammer. And Hamir said, I am sorry, little man. I just meant to wake you, not kick you through my house. But I am surprised that my kick didn't kill you outright. I have something for us to do today, before you leave. And Thor said, what is that? And he said, you have eaten me out of all my food, and you have drank me out of all my mead, so we will need to replenish some of it. Today we are going fishing. And Thor said, okay, I do enjoy fishing. And he said, but you will have to find your own bait and you have to find your own line because nothing I will bring will fit into your small hands. And Thor agreed to this and said, I will find some bait and I will meet you down in your boat. So Thor looked around and looked into the fields 
and he saw the oxen. He walked to them, and he pet one, and he put one hand on one horn and one hand on the other horn, and he twisted and broke the oxen's neck, and then ripped the head clean off and dragged it down to the boat. Amir was frozen, midway through untying the line, staring at Thor, never having seen a man with such strength to rip the head off of one of his giant ox. And Thor jumped onto the boat and said, Well, let us be off then. I have found my bait. And Amir said, Well, little man, don't be frightened when I row us out into the ocean, far to where the finest whales swim. And Thor said, Well, giant, don't be scared when I offer to row further still. So Hamir laughed and began to row, and they rowed for about an hour until the landscape was just a sliver on the horizon. And he said, this is where we will fish. This is where the whales are. And he threw his line over. Thor looked around, looked into the water, and he did indeed see some whales swimming around, but he thought them a bit small, and he pulled Hamir's line out and handed it to him and said, I believe there are bigger fish still to be found, deeper and further out. And Hamir said, have you seen these fish? And... Thor said, well, not personally, but I've heard stories that there are bigger fish out further. And Hamir said, fine, we will row, but I'm getting hungry and know that I might eat you. And Thor said, obviously there's nothing I could do to stop you, but I do feel like there are some bigger fish out that way. So Hamir rowed out further. Now, the land that they've left, just a speck on the horizon. And Hamir stopped and said, is this where we shall find these fish yours? And Thor said, no. We must further go. And Amir said, Well, surely you don't mean to go further than this. And Thor said, If you would like and you're getting tired, I will row. So Amir handed him the oars and said, Bring us to this fishing ground you speak of. So Thor rowed and he rowed for hours and he rowed out further than Amir ever thought possible. He didn't know the ocean extended this far and the waves were a hundred feet tall. The ocean was rough and the skies were gray and Amir was very frightened. And he said, Surely we can go no further than this. And Thor said, oh, a little further still. And he rode, and he rode, and he rode out. He rode until Hamir screamed for him to stop, because the oceans were so rough and the skies so dark that the sun could not penetrate. They were in the shadow of the edge of the earth. And Hamir said, please let us go back. Anything in these waters would surely be the death of us. Turn around, we will catch some whales and I will cook them for you and you may be on your way. I will not eat you. And Thor said, no, but we are where we need to be. And he took the head of the ox and he tied it to the anchor of the boat and he threw it overboard and he let it sink. And they stood for a moment and waited. Amir, far too frightened to fish, just listened as the waves crashed around them. Then suddenly, the boat jerked, pulling forward at first, and then again, this time down. Something was pulling them under. Something so big and so strong that Hamir had never seen anything like it, and he screamed out, I think you have something, and sure enough, Thor gave it a tug, smiled, and said, I'd say you're right. I'd say I do have something. Let's get a look at it. And he began to pull his line, but Hamir spoke up and said, No, cut the line. Whatever is down there will surely be the death of us. Bring us back to the shore, and I will give you anything you want. And Thor smiled and said, That is a great offer, giant, but still, I'm curious as to what's on the other side of this line. So he pulled with all his might. He pulled so hard that his feet pushed against the boat, 
and further dropped it into the ocean. Water was beginning to come over the side and Hamir busied himself with getting the water out, begging and screaming Thor to cut the line. Please, whatever that is will surely be the death of us, and Thor agreed. Probably, but I'd still like to see it. And after a minute of pulling, the ocean around them began to glow red. Clouds thickened the sky. Lightning struck the water. The red glow came closer, and Thor realized it was the glow of the eyes of the Midgard Serpent. A snake so big that it encircled all of Midgard, keeping the water from flowing out. Thor pulled harder, harder, harder. The serpent came closer, closer. The oceans became more violent, thrashing, the boat spinning, pulling. Amir screamed and cried, but could make no words. Then, the Midgard serpent's head broke the water, rose up hundreds of feet above them and looked right down at Thor, and Thor stared right into its eyes. And he said, no, I will be the death of this. And he pulled that rope until the Midgard serpent's head was right alongside of the boat. He reached into his satchel for his hammer. He raised it over his head, preparing to strike dead the serpent of Midgard, when suddenly, the line in his hand went slack, and the Midgard Serpent backed away. He looked over, and Hamir had cut the line. The Midgard Serpent sank back below the surface of the water, and Thor felt cheated and angry. And he turned to Hamir, with the hammer raised over his head, and Hamir said, Of course no man can do what you have done. I know that hammer. You are Thor. Thor didn't say anything. But he didn't strike down Hamir either. Instead, he backed away and struck the side of the boat, cracking it in two. Killing Hamir instantly would be too quick. He decided he would rather let Hamir drown. So he swam back to the shore. He traveled back through the wilderness to where his family was, and he told them they'd have no more to fear from Hamir, that he'd taken care of it, and then he traveled on back to Asgard and back to his father and thanked him for the opportunity to learn more about the people that he was protecting. He made one more promise that he would track down and he would kill every giant in all the wilderness throughout the region and the world. And if you notice, no matter how deep you go into the woods, no matter how high the mountain or how low the valley, you will never see another giant. Uh, I had never heard that story before. And it is, it builds in intensity. So when you start listening to this, if it seems like it's something that's boring, don't stop listening because it, it builds to intensity to a crescendo. And it has a very interesting conclusion. <laughs> I, I, I will leave it at that. And the way that you told it was beautiful. I, no, I appreciate. I, I could have, uh, I could have easily seen you doing audiobook um, narration as your other career. If, if what you weren't doing was wasn't successful. Hey, look, if uh, if all else fails, then uh, then maybe that's where I'll be. I'll be headed. Maybe I'll narrate my own. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so if if anybody I know, uh, Twitter is your main. Um, where you hang out and and mm -hmm. you, you, it, it's fantastic that you engage with people the way you do on Twitter. Uh, but 
would you give people your Twitter handle? And is there any other way that people can find out more about you or your work? Um, yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, it's at Hanson Oak is the uh, Twitter handle. Believe it or not, I'm the only Hanson Oak. And um, hansonoak.com is the website. I was able to get that one too. Um, and then the the website uh, is I'm not that great about uh, keeping it updated. And I do have um, some people who try to help me, but um, that's the most up to date as to where you can find my my longer forms of uh, work. Right now, it's a bunch of short stories published in a lot of different places. Um, I do have uh, two novels that uh, will hopefully be out in the next uh, few years. Uh, we'll see about that. Life like 2020 seems to keep getting in the way. And uh, yeah, that's about it. Feel free to, to stop by and uh, chat with me about whatever. You know, like, like talking to Andrew, I'm, I'm willing to talk about whatever you want within reason. Yeah, I'll second that because, uh, you know, just looking at your writing, it seems like you could be on the level of Stephen King. And I'm not trying to like, but you do, you totally engage with people. You, you're 100% like responding to every tweet that, that somebody sends you. I think it's, it's awesome, dude. Yeah, I, I try to respond. A lot of times I respond with a GIF just because sometimes a GIF says more than, <laughs> yes, than words. Yes, GIFs but, are great. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I try to respond to um, DMs, you know, uh, as much as I can, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm there. Like I said, you know, that's I found the happy place and the, and the happy medium um, in Twitter for myself. So I'm more than happy to engage. Yeah, I, I, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll block someone so hard that they'll disappear in real life if they <laughs> start getting off, off topic with me because I'm not, I'm not there for that. You know, I'm there to, you know, it, it's, it's enjoyable meeting people and seeing how other writers work and um if i can help um younger writers with with anything with that i you know i don't have a vast experience but i have a good amount of experience with with uh, writing and i'll, I'll help out and, and try to lead the way as much as possible but yeah i'm, I'm open to uh the conversation sometimes it takes a little while to get back to people but i generally get back to everybody that's cool so um, i'm gonna ask you um do you have a personal spooky story that you'd like to share for the, for this uh, episode personal spooky story Let's something see. that'll curl your toes or blow your hair back <laughs> a dream a ghost story well i guess and i mean feel free to to keep this in there too because i've said it before it's not a, a shocker but you know as much as i write about um and 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 especially on Twitter, like ghosts and and demons and and uh, beyond dead and all that sort of stuff. It's nothing that I actually believe in, and I think maybe that's part of um, why I'm able to write as dark as I do is because I don't feel like there's a repercussion to it. <laughs> there are people who um, have warned me uh, that if you you know it's the old thing if you if you knock on the devil's door, eventually he'll answer. So there, there are people who who um, um, have beliefs in place, uh, usually religious, and it's not you know Christianity or whatever. It could be different things, but um, 
they feel if you delve into and talk about stuff like that, you're inviting it. And to me, uh, personally, I, I don't believe it. I'm open to it. You know, I've said before, I wish somebody would uh, show me proof of, of anything and uh, I'll be open to it. And I haven't shut anything out, but I haven't seen anything thus far that leads me to believe in, in a lot of the, uh, the monsters and the demons and the ghosts and the angels and, and all that sort of stuff. So even though uh, my writing is, is in one direction, my, my personal belief and where I am in, in, in real life is, is probably the opposite end of that. Like I said, I'm, you know, I'm looking to science. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and the world needs people like that uh, just as much as they need people that are dreamers. Um, but uh, have you ever had an experience that you just can't explain that got your that got oh, your oh, tinglers sure. going? I'll tell you, I'll tell you one, and there's I might tell you another one. But there was one time um, I was out for a hike, and I was going through the woods. And I live in New England, and um, I consider myself a New Englander. We we've toyed with the idea of moving to. Uh, to Colorado or Montana or something like that, because my wife and I both have an affinity for mountains and, and open landscapes and stuff, even though I think Colorado is starting to eat away at that um, pristine image that I have of it, just, just the development and stuff like that. But, um, you know, I, I've, I've come to the conclusion a long time ago that I'm a New Englander. I love the architectural styles of the old houses. I love the old towns. I, I live in a town that was um, founded in 1706 and there are still original buildings and structures from that time. And I find it, there's a, a beauty in, in the age of it. I live, I live in a, uh, a more, I wanna say rural area, but it's definitely more rural than uh, suburban. I have, live around a lot of farms and rolling hills and and stuff like that in my town has its own um, myths and legends like like most do. So um, there's a uh, park by me and there's a legend attached to it where um, back during colonial times when settlers first came into the area, there was a, a tribe and the um, chieftain's son, uh, the chieftain's daughter and the general, uh, I'm going to butcher this story because I, I wasn't planning on telling it, but there was uh, the, the person in charge of the scouting mission, his son fell in love with the chief's daughter um, and they would sneak out, you know, very typical Hollywood romance, but this is, this is an absolutely true story. They fell in love with each other. They were young. Um, then one day they went to meet up um, on the cliffs of this park and they were being hunted for lack of a better word to find out because I guess word got out that they were um, out to see each other and had a, had a little romance going. Um, long story short, they, they jumped um, hand in hand from the ledge and they were later found drowned in the river. So uh, we have lore like that around here, which I find fascinating. Um, so I was out for a, uh, a hike with my son a while back and uh, we came up uh, one of the trails, which leads to sort of like a, a blind hill. You can't really see what's on the other side. Um, and we came over and there was a woman sitting on uh, 
sitting against a tree as we came down. And she looked at me and there was nothing, you know, really odd about her out of place. It wasn't like she was wearing old timey clothing and she wasn't stirring a cauldron or anything like that. It was just a woman sitting against a tree and we came down the hill. Um, and she looked at me and she said, it's a nice day. And I said, it's a nice day, how you doing? This is before uh, COVID. So, you know, we could speak to each other and not run screaming in the opposite direction. And um, I walked down the hill and she said, just be sure you be careful. And when I turned back, she was gone. Wow. The woman was not sitting against the tree. Um, my son kept going and I stopped him and I was looking around for her and she was nowhere to be found. Now, am I saying that there are ghosts or spirits or anything in the woods? No. Would I love for there to be? Absolutely. I think that'd be, <laughs> that'd be incredible. I want to live in a haunted house. Show me a haunted house. Um, and I asked my son if he had seen her or heard her and he just stared at me. So, you know, on top of the possibility, which I won't rule out, that it was some sort of premonition or spirit or what have you. It could have also been a mild stroke because he <laughs> had no idea that it happened. He didn't know who dad was talking to. <laughs> so, so there's that one. So I can't explain that one. Um, that, that gave me the chills, man, because it was kind of unexpected that you actually turned back and she was gone. Like, what did she do, duck behind the tree? Yeah, that's what I was like. I was just standing there. I'm like, what? Yeah. So, um, all right. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it. Uh, but it's fascinating talking to you, Hanson. And I really appreciate you spending so much time with me. Tell your no wife problem. I said thank you. And, um, <laughs> you know, I apologize for keeping you so long. But it's been no, interesting. No, no. It's, it's been, again, thank you very much for, uh, for the invitation and the kind words. All right, then, my man. Have a good night.